Good morning. Uh, on page 785 in the Pew Bible, we find words from the prophet Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, read thusly. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation that marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour, to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and Lord for your word. Pray that as you by your spirit open your word that you would likewise open our hearts and minds. Open our deaf ears to receive and to know and to submit to the truth of your word. Father, we pray that what we are not, you would make us. We pray that what we do not have, you would give us. Father, we pray that what we lack, you would supply. And most, and above all, in Christ, we would be conformed to his image so that you might be pleased with our lives and our worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Two weeks ago, we opened up the book of Habakkuk and did a surface-level introduction to the book. This morning, I want to kind of backtrack and and look at the beginning of the book, half of chapter 1. I was, oh, there's my sermon. Look at that. Already, my sermon is different from what I wrote. (laughs) Uh, We backtracked and we looked at uh, at the whole thing. And and I want to dive in a little bit deeper. Let's open up chapter 1 
Thank you, Don, for reading it. Verse 1 starts with it as the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. We don't know much about Habakkuk. He doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture. All that we know about him is actually just right here. I guess all we can say is that he's a prophet. And here, the book, three chapters, is made up of his oracle. Prophets prophesy and have oracles to which they see, and they give those oracles to the people. But I think, actually, if you have your King James Bible, maybe few of us do, I'm reading from the ESV, you have what I think is actually a better translation of verse 1. I prefer the burden that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. Here at the beginning, it's not so much the oracle that God gives to him, but it's, it's what Habakkuk, the prophet, is burdened by that we see laid out in the rest of this book. Last week, Pastor Mike had a point of application where, if you remember, we were talking about growing, and, and he, he kind of keyed in on the men, and he said, men of Greenbelt Baptist, are you, are you growing and seeking to become elders so that your growth is marked by your teaching?" Let me just add quickly to that point of application out of verse 1. Men, women, do you have a burden for other people? Your instruction of God's word to the people of God shouldn't just come out of a desire to teach and to, to be a prophet. But for Habakkuk, and I think for us, it ought to be flowing out of firstly and foremostly a burden. What is that burden? Well, we get it laid out, and, and as I said, I'm just going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. The, the whole first two chapters is broken up into kind of a back and forth between Habakkuk, his burden, and then God's answer. So Habakkuk lays forth his burden, his complaint, uh, verses 2 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 11, God gives an answer. And then next week, we'll, we'll look at verses 12 through 17, where Habakkuk responds again. And then in the rest of chapter 2, God gives again his answer. But his burden is seen clearly in verses 2 through 4. What he's firstly burdened by, is if you remember, he's looking around at society. He's looking around at his immediate context. And what does he see? Well, he says, verse 2, violence. Verse 3, why do you make me to see iniquity? And wrong and destruction, they're all before me. Verse 4, the the law is paralyzed, unable to function. Justice never goes forth, or probably better translated, is, is stillborn. For the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth twisted. It's perverted. He lives in a land marked by evil times, wicked intentions. That's not mainly his burden, is it? What's the real tone and tenor of his prayer? Well, it's this, verse 2. O Lord, and notice he uses there the the, the covenant name Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, you who promised back in, in the book of Deuteronomy for those who do not obey you and those who do not hear your word and give disdain to your word, you will bring curses. Oh, Lord, as I look around and I I see violence and I see disobedience, where are you? 
How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? His real burden is the silence of God. The seeming absence of God doing anything. You've revealed yourself, God, this way. I know who you are from what I read in Genesis through Deuteronomy. And Lord, where are you? Are you silent? I think a couple of things that we can see from this burden was one, that the way Habakkuk wrestles with the problem of evil, the way that Habakkuk is thinking through the the very seriousness of the cultural decline that he sees around him, is not how I think we are tempted, or at least my peers are tempted, to think about it, stuck away in some seminary library, picking up the best books and reading all the philosophical nuts and bolts of theodicy and how a good God can can exist with the existence of evil. He isn't doing any of that here. And neither is he out in the street with firm apologetics, bringing the latest and greatest theological defense for the existence of God and, and, and trying to convince the people God is still there. How does, how does Habakkuk wrestle with the problem of evil? Well, as a man with a burden, he's praying for the very people caught in that evil. Not only the evil ones themselves, but those who are surrounded, the righteous ones, surrounded by evil. You see, his theology isn't just here. It's, it's here, and it's, it's him on his knees, and he's wrestling with the very serious consequences of a society that doesn't listen to God, that seems to hate God. And so what does he do? He prays. I wonder if that's how we think about our society. I wonder if we are concerned after a night of perhaps sinfully indulging in too much news, we go to prayer. Or do we look around and say, (laughs) I'm not like those people. At least I'm going to church. Or are we more like Habakkuk? Wrestling with God in the privacy of our closets. And saying, Lord, where are you? Where is your salvation? Save. Save. I think we also get insight in here into the nature of prayer. Don't we often come to problems and burdens and then think of our time of prayer, I guess, much like a a frazzled mother does at the end of the night after she puts down all her toddlers to sleep and just wants a nice glass of wine? That's how we think about prayer, right? Just calming, soothing, relaxing. But is that what is happening here with Habakkuk? Now notice as he prays, it seems that his burden is intensified, isn't it? Lord, I've been praying. I've been coming to you. Where are you? How long? For Habakkuk, and and dare I say, I think for most of the prophets in the Old Testament, prayer is not this calming, soothing time of quiet and peace, a, a hallmark picture of us Gently coming before God. No, more often than not, at least in Scripture, praying is described as a wrestling 
with God. An intensified wrestling with the issues that you have. And in and through that praying, and in God's good sovereign grace, not immediately answering your prayers, the burden is is heavier. And your praying becomes harder. And your wrestling more intense. But what's happening there? You're being more taken out of yourself and more concerned with what's going on. Oh, and dare we say, more reliant upon God. For Habakkuk, prayer is this intense wrestling. But then we get the Lord's answer in verses 5 through 11. What is his answer? Well, it's surprising. If the first part is Habakkuk's burden, perhaps we can summarize the next part as God's Babylon. He says, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a.k.a. the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. In other words, what God is doing is saying, yes, here's my answer. I'm raising up this nation who does not know me, and I will use them to bring judgment upon you. Now, there's a lot of interesting things going on here, but but I think we need to do a little bit of homework first. Here's our first bit of homework. Look there at verse 5, where he says, look, look among the nations. In the original Hebrew, I think what you would see, I know what you would see, is this. Not just Habakkuk, look. It's actually a plural. So that a better wooden translation might be this, according to verse 5. You all, look. You all, see. I want you all to wonder and be astounded from doing a work in your all, in your days, that you all would not believe if told. Who's he speaking to here? Well, it's not just to Habakkuk. It's God giving an answer to Habakkuk, to as a prophet, as a preacher of God's word, to what? Display that oracle, God's burden, to the people. But what's the job of a prophet? Well, it is to at once intercede on behalf of the people, as he's done in verses 2 through 4, to God, but then reversely to get God's answer on behalf of the people And dispel it to preach it to them. And so here's God's answer. I want you to look around and see what I'm doing. But there's another subtlety here that we might be missing. And it's this. When he says, you all look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. Older translations actually have it that says, you all look among the treacherous. Look among the scoffers and see. And so the, the, the difference that's going on here, and here's the evidence behind it. Uh, the only evidence that we have for look among the nations is in a manuscript from the 11th century, uh, uh, right about the Middle Ages. But all the older translations, uh, even the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, have it as look among the treacherous, look among the scoffers. And in fact, Paul quotes this actual verse in Acts 13, And how does he translate in Acts 13, verse 41? He says, you all people look among the treacherous. Look among the scoffers. Jesus' own Greek version, what we know as the Septuagint, translated it this latter way. 
So what I think is going on here is not so much God telling Habakkuk, look out among the nations and I'm going to raise up among the nations this country called Babylon. Actually, what God is telling Habakkuk, you all, look amongst yourselves, the troublemakers, the treacherous, the scoffers. Because it is treacherous, isn't it, to be a people who have spurned the word of God and no longer listen to the preaching of Habakkuk? Habakkuk, no doubt, has been preaching to them. Listen to God, listen to God. Okay, Habakkuk. And so God says, look out amongst yourselves. I'm about to do something that you would not believe. What's going on here? I think it's this. In Habakkuk's time, things were going well. Times were good. And as is the case with Israel, and I think as is the case with most people, when times are going good, the good times become God. What does that look like practically? Well, it looks like this. (laughs) Things are great. And perhaps when I sin, I'm tempted to think, God hasn't judged me in the past for it. And I'm not quite so certain he's going to judge me now. Isn't that what we're tempted to think at times? Perhaps it looks like this. When times are going well and and life is easy, well, you know, life is good. God has blessed us. I can, you know, maybe skip a day here. Uh, Church is only relegated to Sunday mornings. The rest, you know, God has given me to enjoy. Or perhaps it starts looking like this, that, yeah, yeah, I, I started going to church maybe only on Christmas and Easter. I, I don't think God's upset with that. We have an agreement together. Well, then maybe it's just like, I think religion and God should be private. Right? You don't need to bring God and his word and, and your religious thoughts to bear upon my ideas and, and the public sphere. Uh, this needs to be relegated. That seems to be what was happening in, in Habakkuk's day. People were more and more not concerned with the word of God. People were more and more thinking in a treacherous way, God doesn't really care. Life is good. He hasn't judged us yet. What makes us think he's going to do so now? To which God says, look among yourselves, O treacherous ones. Be astounded and wonder, I'm going to do something that you would not believe if I told you. I will act. I will judge. I wonder how we think about this today. Let me ask it like this. I wonder who here is thinking as we think through this passage. Yeah. As I look out across America today, I see the same thing happening. As I look out across our landscape and and, and, and the cultural atmosphere of of, of the American people, there's clearly this, this slide into not caring about God's word. Might I say that that is the wrong way to apply this text? In the Old Testament, yes, certainly God had his people. He picked out one country, Israel, the Jews, to be his people and he their God. But in Christ, what does God's people look like? Well, God's people is picked out from every tribe and every nation and every tongue who collectively together become his church, his people. 
So yes, I think it's right to look out at our cultural atmosphere today and to be burdened and to pray for the lives and and the living of, of the world. But when God tells Habakkuk, look among yourselves, O treacherous ones, and see, might it be better to apply that from the them and then to the us and now and say, O Christians, O church, O Greenbelt Baptist, look amongst yourself and see. I mean, isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that you're not to judge the ones outside the church, unbelievers. They're already under judgment. You're to judge those inside, those who claim to be believers. He says, look amongst yourselves and see, wonder and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, what is the thing that he's going to do? Well, it's the surprising sovereign work of raising up that wicked nation, Babylon. And and look how he describes them. Verse 7, they're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards. Uh, He describes them as evening wolves. Have you ever seen a video of wolves in the evening running through the snow in Alaska? It's, it's, uh, I imagine, much like um, raptors, right, in in Jurassic Park. It's just crazy to see how they work together and accomplish their kill. And that's how he's poetically describing Babylon. Uh, Their their horses and and, and their riding out is like the swiftness of an eagle coming out of the sky and capturing its prey like that. They're violent, verse 9. They capture their captives like sand. No king stands in their way. And the point that God is bringing up, again, is verse 6. I am raising them up. I am using them for your judgment. We looked at this last week and we noted the, the beauty uh, of, 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 of Habakkuk underscoring here God's sovereignty. But I don't think we want to just kind of stay there and kind of say, <laughs> we've done it again. We've seen God's sovereignty in the scriptures and, and let's be content with that. It's more than that, isn't it? It's not just that God is in control What's more, that he's, that he's judging. He's not silent. He will bring upon his people the very judgment that they deserve. I think many of us go to bed at night, perhaps anxious, whether consciously or subconsciously, as we look back over our day and and think about the very real temptation that we all too often fall into. God hasn't dealt with my sin yet. Perhaps I can do this again or I can act in this way just again. And God isn't silent. God will judge. I think we see this and we, we need to realize Yes, God will do a thing. God will bring his judgment to bear upon all men for every sin that they have done. He sees all, he knows all, and he will in the end end accomplish all. 
But there's something more here with this sovereignty as, as he raises up this nation to bring judgment. It's not just judgment. As we'll see next week, he is bringing salvation out of that judgment. He will make Israel to be a people who will no longer uh, worship idols and, and, and forsake God's word. Interestingly enough, what was one of their biggest sins but to, to start worshiping other idols? And who was Babylon known as in the ancient world? But the nation of idols, you went into Babylon and you would see on every street corner, idols everywhere. They were baptized in idolatry. They loved it. And so what God is doing in essence is saying, okay, you like this sin? Much like Romans 1, I will let you do what you want to do. That's my judgment upon you. I will sovereignly raise up a nation that loves idols. And I will bring them to bear on judgment upon you because you love idols so much. Isn't that how God acts so often? I think succinctly we could say it like this. Many times, God's later, last day judgment can be seen now in the very sins we begin to give ourselves up to. God's judgment can be seen in our lives now in the very sins we begin to give ourselves into. And in his sovereignty here, who is he using to judge his people? It's not just this abstract judgment. He's using an unbelieving nation, an outside people, to bring judgment upon his group of people. And that happens so often today, too. Think of the man within the church who gives in more and more to his desired sin and and begins to explicitly or illicitly have a relationship with that unbelieving woman outside of the church. And what is God doing? But giving him up to that. And that's the very judgment, using the outside believer to bring judgment upon that very man. I've said it a million times, and I keep on saying it. God's worst judgment that he ever could inflict upon man is to give him up to his own exalted free will. Or the reverse of that is just as true, is it not? That the grace of God is to restrain us and to bring us into subjection unto his own will. And so here for Habakkuk, that judgment is him, God, bringing this outside unbelieving nation, a nation who, who loves to do the very things that Israel is tempted to do, And he brings them to bear upon Israel. Interestingly, if you look at Israel after their Babylonian exile, they never again struggle with idolatry. Never again will you see Israel returning to putting up idols in the high places. Even to this day, that is the sin for Orthodox Jews. Well, how are we to think about this with us? I think a couple of things. We've already laid out that I think it's an illegitimate theological application to say that, that Israel equates to America today. Let's put that lie to rest. America is not and has never been God's nation. Americans are not God's people. God could do with America whatever he wants to do. I think as we look around, we can take comfort in this as Americans Yeah, sure. 20 years ago, life seemed like this. And maybe, perhaps today, life seems like this. But for the Christian, that doesn't matter. That's okay. God's in control. I know growing up, I thought, and I think most people thought, 
that life would just keep on getting better. We, we kind of assume, don't we, that, that, that there's just this general progression in life. Our, 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 um, our investments will come back more. We'll, we'll sell our house for more in the future. Our kids, they'll probably get a better education than we will. Life, for general, we assume, goes like this. Why do we think that? What American idol is that? I am reminded, uh, was reading recently, of the generation that grew up after 1870. Before 1870, yes, like the rest of history, times were tumultuous. But after 1870, pretty much across the world sphere, things were peaceful. In fact, politically, this is where we get the term the progressives. Because everyone thought life was progressing. Uh, Theologically speaking, if you know your eschatological views, there were more post-millennials at this time than any other time in history. Post-millennials say that uh, um, the kingdom of God is here and life is getting better. We'll all become Christians. Uh, Life just seemed to be getting better and better. Until what happened? 1910, World War I hits. Soon after that, there's worldwide economic collapse and depression, which leads right into the horrors of World War II and, 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 and the hellish nightmare of Holocaust. That generation who grew up after 1870 assumed, I think like we assumed, life is going to get better, but they ended their life in the 1940s, many of them in Europe, saying, what happened? Life is not good. And winter after winter after winter, thousands dying of starvation because society had collapsed in the West, or at least in Western Europe. Friends, why do we think that life gets better? Why do we think that we are so secure and stable? Can we point to one country, one nation in the history of the world that has escaped decline or turmoil? or has been overturned. All nations rise, and all nations fall. I think as Christian Americans, we want to embrace that with a smile. We don't want to buy into the idols of security and safety. Yes, those are good things. They ought not to become our gods. We are not God's country. This is not God's people. The church is God's people. And he can do with an America whatever he wants. The second thing I think is interesting in this is that God does have sovereign control over nations and he uses it in such a way to bring about greater good. Another history that I was reading noted that in the ancient world, and historians are agreed upon this across the board, infanticide reigned. A child's sacrifice was normal. Violence was everywhere. Uh, Slavery was a thing that no one questioned. Until, in the world scene, Babylon comes along and starts devouring nations. Now, they're violent, and they enslave. But something happens in their violence and in their enslavement. Nations crumble, and especially for the Jews, they either go into exile, or either killed in Jerusalem, or dispersed through the rest of the world. We know that as the dispersion, right? After Babylon, we we see the rise of um, Greece. And what happens with Greece is they they come into the ruins of the Babylonian kingdom, and they do something that never happened before in history. 
they, they make the world to speak one language for the first time, Greek, right? The first lingua franca. So that one person uh, in, in, in Greece can write a book, and pretty much across the rest of the world, everyone else can read it and understand it. Oh, i.e., even these Jewish dispersed communities. We get the Septuagint out of that. And then comes the rise of Rome. And what happens there? We get the first thing that hasn't happened in history before, kind of peace in the known world, right? The Pax Romana. Roads are built. You can, for the first time now, travel from one end of the empire to the other end of the empire in relative safety. We're all speaking the same language, Greek, and there's Jews all over. Now, here's why this is so fascinating. In Acts, we see that the very people who are most receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel which was being proclaimed in Greek and which could easily go out to the ends of the world because of Roman peace, was being received by those very people who lived in communities where the dispersed Jews had set up synagogues. It wasn't the Jews per se, but it was the Gentiles living in those cities whom were known as God-fearers, who had been introduced to the God Yahweh and introduced to the Old Testament ideas. And here comes Paul and the other missionaries And he says, here's the fulfillment of what you had learned from these Jewish dispersed uh, believers. It's Jesus Christ. And throughout Acts, they all start believing. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. I think we see something here that Habakkuk doesn't see. Habakkuk cries out, God, what are you doing? Where are you? And in his silence, God is saying, you're not going to understand. Tell me, Lord, what are you doing? I need to understand. Okay, I'm going to bring the Babylons to wreak havoc on you and put you into exile and slavery. What does Habakkuk say? I don't understand. But we do. He raised up nations and perfectly placed them so that a hundred years later, hundreds of years later, the gospel is perfectly ready to move into a situation where the gospel of Christ brings many people to salvation. God is doing things in history that he sees generations down the road that we might not have any idea about, can't even figure it out, and it works out perfectly. Individually in our own lives, God might be doing 3,000 different things that we might only be aware of three of them, and we're upset about two. And yet he perfectly uses it to bring about his glory and our greater good. You look at the news today and everyone's, you know, worried about the ascendancy of, of China, right? And they're the new economic powerhouse and, uh, and, and what's America going to do? The world's unstable. Go back a couple generations to China and here in the West, uh, right? Remember when China uh, uh, became communist and the first thing that they did was kick out who? All the Christian missionaries, And here in the West, we said, oh, what what is God doing? Where's God? How unfair. And what happened? And then through that, actual Chinese men and women began to go out and become missionaries in their own context, in their own way. And now there are more Christians in China than anywhere else in the world. And we look back and say, oh, you were doing something good. I don't know what the world holds for us. I don't know if, if, uh, if this is too early as something for us to be scared about. Maybe America does go tomorrow, 
and uh, praise God, China becomes the ascendant power and, and, and takes rule. And there are millions and millions of Chinese Christians right now. Oh, what a great thing that would be who go out into all the world and begin proclaiming the Gospels and setting up Chinese Christian seminaries all throughout parts of the world that have never known the Gospel. That would be good. And we would want to say as Christians in love with the sovereignty of God, yes, that is good. Here's one part where I can look to my sermon and, and perhaps end here. right so we looked at tobacco and I've been thinking about it I've been reminded and recalling the great hymn of William Cooper some say Cowper William Cooper whose great hymn God moves in a mysterious way we sang it two weeks ago listen to how William Cooper expresses the truth here God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings upon your head. He grasps the fearfulness of our not knowing the end and reminds us to take courage that God does and he's designed it perfectly even before the foundation of the world. Years later, the Apostle Paul, as we said, was preaching to the Gentiles in Acts 13 and and he looks there in Acts 13 at this very text of Habakkuk and And he he applies it so wonderfully to Jesus Christ. He he looks out and, and he says, judgment is coming. And I want you to know, Gentiles, that Christ didn't come as a judge to bring the sword, but he but he came in weakness. And he took upon himself judgment. I think that's so interesting. If, if Habakkuk the prophet at the beginning of our text here is crying out that he can't understand how God can, can be holy and yet allow sin to reign and he doesn't understand the geopolitics of the world, Paul takes Habakkuk's burden, his prayer, and he, he says the answer to that is actually found in Christ on the cross. I think in a real sense on the cross we have the ultimate Habakkuk. Is it not true that Christ prays out, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup. But Father, not my will, but yours be done. I don't understand this judgment. We would say that. But I know you will bring out perfect salvation from it. Indeed, on the cross, Jesus cried out, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? I think there we see the cry of Habakkuk. But it's answered perfectly. Because in that absence and forsakenness of God from the Son, there Christ, as the perfect Habakkuk, takes our forsakenness, takes our judgment, so that we don't have to be forsaken. 
so that we can now not go to bed anxious about our sins. But we can trust that in God's sovereignty, he has done away with our sins perfectly, cast them as far away as the east is from the west. And in Christ, we know that our future is firm in his hand. We will not face judgment. And even when the world crumbles around us, and the rest of the unbelieving world does face judgment, we can, as Revelation calls us to, conquer and maintain faithfulness in and through it all, trusting in God's goodness. Let's pray.